Blog Talk Radio. Solutions-oriented talk radio show focusing on issues in and contemporary issues at that in educational leadership. And I am your host, Brian Perkins. Uh, today we have a special guest with us, Dr. Paul Zach, who is a scientist, writer, uh, speaker, um, a author of uh, several books, and uh, finalist for the Welcome Trust Book Prize. Um, he's the founding director of the Center for Neuroeconomic Studies and a professor of the economics at the Claremont Graduate University. Um, so we uh, welcome uh, Dr. Paul Zach. Welcome, Paul. Thank you so much, Brian. I'm happy to be here. We have uh, approximately 5,000 listeners every month that tune in and, and a lot of very interesting topics, and uh, today is, is one of them. Um, the title of today's show is Trust in the Moral Molecule, the Chemistry Behind Trusting Relationships. Um, uh, Paul has uh, written a, a book called The Moral Molecule, The Source of Love and Prosperity. Um, and one of the things that I found really interesting in doing some research for today's show um, with Paul's uh, book in mind was that um, some of the work that he is actually the, the person who um, uh, coined the term neuroeconomics. And, and, and he has been really on the vanguard of this uh, new, interesting uh, discipline. So what I want to do is get, first, Paul, if you don't mind, tell us a little bit about the work you're doing. I have so many questions for you about uh, this moral molecule, but particularly around trust, um, uh, I, as you already know, I'm a professor in a program that trains individuals to be leaders, and we're always looking for information to help um, our our students, but also our graduates become better leaders. But I, let's start first by talking about the work that you're doing, what you're doing exactly. Yeah, thank you. Um, so I run a 25-person behavioral neuroscience laboratory. And we have spent uh, the last 15 years trying to understand these really small questions humans haven't thought much about, like the nature of good and evil. Uh, and, and we've actually focused on the good side. Evil actually is really easy to study. Um, you know, it, from a neuroscience perspective, you know, there's a lot of interesting pathologies that produce bad behavior. But uh, for most of us, most of the time, um, we are, treat each other pretty nicely. Um, so the question is, how does that happen in the brain? How do we understand it? What promotes or inhibits it? And then more generally from a leadership perspective, how do we harness this more effective uh, organizations, uh, more effective learning communities, and greater engagement by uh, teachers and students, for example? Um, so anyway, that's, that's, the, uh, that's the, the short answer. Uh, the longer right. answer is that we use a, a variety of tools from neuroscience and design experiments both in the laboratory and, and increasingly uh, within organizations, field experiments, to understand how these different brain mechanisms respond to particular environments and how that affects the way people 
behave with each other and affects, um, you know, how, how engaged they are in particular tasks like learning tasks. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so this, this, the, the work that you're doing uh, now, so you, it's, it's, it's generally focused on, on neurology. Uh, is, is, is that an accurate uh, representation? Uh, uh, yes. I mean, we are really trying to understand why people make the decisions they make, which is essentially the, the research program in neuroeconomics. But in particular, my group is interested in social decisions. So how does what you're doing, Brian, affect what I'm doing? And why do we uh, uh, often follow the leader? So, for example, you know, this happens to all of us. You know, you go to a restaurant with some friends, and you're really thinking about ordering steak, and then the person who's ordering before you orders fish. And you go, yeah, it sounds pretty good, and you order fish. So how does that happen? How do we, you know, influence each other in these very subtle ways? And because the brain, as you know, is not designed to articulate our inner states, our inner feelings, it's very hard to ask people, gosh, why did you do A or B or C? So by measuring brain activity directly, we can interrogate the organ, organ that is actually producing these uh, different decisions. Oh, Interesting. Very interesting. So one of the things that I'm really interested in and you, that really uh, piqued my interest is when you talked about how we make decisions and, and some of the mechanisms um, that we, in some cases, we're not exactly aware of. Uh, in this case, uh, from what I'm hearing, is that there, there are there are certain triggers that may that have to do in some cases with uh, your environment, people, other kind of peer influences, and I think people kind of understand peer influences. Uh, but the, but even in the peer influence, that what I'm also hearing is that there's a kind of uh, a chemical mechanism uh, in what you in what you're saying too. Um, one of the one of the surprises when I read some of your work was about uh, the the in decision making that the uh, oxytocin plays a role in that as well. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Uh, oxytocin is a brain chemical that all of us make that um, my lab first discovered essentially functions as a signaling molecule that tells us whether someone around us is uh, safe or familiar. And when that signal is released, it motivates us to interact with them. So from the brain's perspective, um, the value of being around people, particularly people we don't know, strangers, is that we might uh, become friends, we might work on a project together, uh, we might date, who knows. Um, But the downside is that person could waste your time or could be dangerous. And so we're constantly balancing the sort of appropriate fear of other people with uh, a desire to interact with them, uh, which is a you know, deep part of our social nature. Um, so I think when it, when it comes to individuals working in groups, um, you know, the question is, you know, how do we use this knowledge to generate uh, effective environments where people can be successful at learning or not learning um, at work, at school? Uh, so one way that oxytocin works is it, uh, there's a couple interesting things. It, it first uh, essentially gives us a kind of a calming effect. So when, when I'm around people or a person who um, induces my brain to make oxytocin, then I feel comfortable around that person. And we know that 
more learning occurs when people are in a more comfortable environment, when they feel relaxed. Um, and the second is that uh, oxytocin essentially gives us a little reward signal in the brain for treating other people in socially appropriate ways. So I w- we call those moral ways, moral with a small m, without any uh, um, philosophical or, or religious connotation. Um, so the way we sustain ourselves in social groups is to essentially play nice most of the time. Um, so again, once we have this understanding of the neurochemistry of playing nice, then we can ask a, a lot more interesting questions like, why? So I, I know you're a wonderful person. I can just tell. We chatted before uh, we got on the air. But once in a while, occasionally, you, you know, you, you get frustrated and you, I don't know, once in your life, you must have yelled at somebody. Um, how's that happen? What's, what's, what causes that? What about people, uh, say students in school, who consistently um, misbehave? Um, you know, how do we understand that? So what we've done is spent a lot of time looking at how we promote or inhibit oxytocin release to understand everything from uh, patients with, with uh, psychiatric neurologic disorders to, um, you know, the variety of behaviors we see in individuals, even though even the people we know very well. Yes, yes. Interesting. And so what would you say the message would be to uh, individuals in leadership roles? I mean, you said a mouthful about um, the impact that you, you may have on someone's decisions. Um, one of the things that leaders ha- have as a responsibility is to get uh, people to follow, to get people to make good decisions for the leader who's trying to uh, influence decision making, how can how how would their this information about um, the importance and the relationship of oxytocin to decision making help them? How how does the knowledge of this uh, what you're calling the moral molecule um, how how does that help them in their their roles as leaders? Wonderful question, and, and in fact, my uh, my next book coming out next year is, is exactly on this topic, which is how do leaders build high trust, high performance organizations? And we've used the neuroscience from from the laboratory and many many experiments in for profit and non profit businesses to identify ways that leaders can influence others uh, in terms of increasing their performance. So uh, we've, we've developed a, an entire system to actually quantify trust within organizations. But the, the way to think about it is if you're a leader, you can influence people through fear or through love. Let's just talk, think of it as polar extremes. So fear is actually a very good character motivator. Um, the problem is that people also make this fear quite quickly and then essentially give up. So if you put a rat in a cage and you randomly shock it very rapidly, there's nothing you can do to get away from that and then just lie in the cage and get shocked until it dies. So that's not what we want for people around us, certainly people that uh, are following us as a leader. Um, so on the other side is we can possibly influence people. We can create an environment where we are motivating other individuals to reach their goals, where we're working very much as uh, servant leaders to make those around us successful as opposed to uh, selfish leaders who want to get you know, success to show off or get a promotion. Um, so anyway, in this work, uh, we have quantified the factors that leaders can control that 
uh, empower those around them to be successful. And part of this is, uh, as, as you suggested in your question, is a positive modeling of that behavior. So if you're a trustworthy leader, then you have to be open and transparent and uh, be natural. You should be authentic. Um, at the same time, you know, you've got to recognize that as, you're, as a leader, your role is to make those around you as successful as possible. And you can do that by giving them challenges, by recognizing them when they do well, um, by allowing them to have personal and professional growth, and by devolving power to them on how they execute projects. So we really worked out a very systematic way to help leaders um, really reach the highest amount of success. We did that actually by starting with, in some sense, the most naive question about Mm -hmm. people working together, but also the most profound question, which is, you know, in a very real sense, everyone at work is a volunteer. They can go choose to work somewhere else, and they're, they're voluntarily choosing to work at this organization. So what kind of culture would you create if people would show up and not get paid. So what would it take to create a culture where you love what you're doing so much, you're so, um, uh, you're so motivated by the purpose of the organization, you care so much about the people you work with that you would, don't even need to be paid. So, of course, we are paying people something fairly, but um, the neuroscience shows very clearly that money is a very weak motivator for performance, but people are a very strong motivator. So understanding the purpose of the organization, why we're doing what we're doing, and being challenged and recognized are very important. Um, so it turns out that um, oxytocin and stress have a very interesting relationship. So moderate levels of stress cause us to come together to work on projects. And so um, we like being challenged. I think of sports, right? You know, when you're on a sports team, you know what the, what the outcome is, uh, you know, what the goal is, is to, you know, score as many points as possible. And you're doing this as a team and you're understanding that you only win this if you do it as a team. So we can do the same thing at work. We can design challenges and give people lots of feedback, help them be successful, um, work as coaches, but also give them enough autonomy that they really own projects and feel uh, complete buy-in to them. So, um, uh, we set off online. Uh, we uh, was uh, last week speaking to a group of school superintendents about how to do this in schools, and it definitely can be done, right? So the, the, I think the key is for leaders in education is setting very clear performance goals, measuring those, and then um, again working as a, as a facilitator so that teachers, administrators, and even students are held to high standards and are. Are uh, worked with, are, are uh, monitored if they can't reach those standards, and are celebrated when they do. Wow! Um, and you you went right to what was going to be my next question was so what does that look like if you are a school leader or even a district leader? And that you you answered that uh, one of the uh, important pieces that you said here uh, for me at least was about being clear about what the purpose is. Um, And although I do want to get back to what that looks like from a behavioral standpoint, the person who is the leader, I want to put a kind of put a pin in it here for a moment and, and just talk about this idea of, of the relationship between purpose 
if you have people, a leader that has a particular vision or uh, even a leadership team that has a particular vision uh, for, the, for the purpose of the organization and the importance of kind of alignment between the people who are working in the organization and the leadership vision so that you can have a shared vision of where you should go, a shared sense of purpose. One of the things that I have uh, said to my children has been um, that they should pursue the work that they would do for free. Um, that what are, whatever their interests are, whatever their goals, if there's something that they could do with their lives that they would do, whether or not they were paid, that would be a good step in the right direction. Uh, but we have people who are in jobs or in or, or and actually work in organizations where their counter purpose. Um, how, what is your 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 real recommendation to leaders who have have are find themselves in that situation? What if, what if anything can they do to pull members of the organization back in that direction? Uh, it's a, a wonderful question, and I've had the privilege of working with a lot of organizations that have that kind of crisis where people are engaging in what's been called presenteeism. I show up, I do the minimum amount of work, and then I go home and fine. Um, and that's not a way to reach high performance for the individual nor for the organization. Um, so the first thing is, is think about that, the, uh, what I call transcendent purpose of, of the organization. So by that I mean that organization, and actually every organization, only exists because it improves the lives of people. Right? Otherwise, for-profit, non-profit, it wouldn't be there. So first of all is to understand what our transcendent purpose is and then communicate that clearly and constantly. Um, so uh, Jeff Wiener, who's the CEO and founder of LinkedIn, told me recently, you can't repeat your purpose narrative often enough, and I agree with that. So it's got to be something that we live every day. So if we're in a school and our purpose, uh, our, our transcendent purpose, our grand purpose is to improve the lives of citizens in our community, and we do that by teaching students the skills they need to be successful as complete human beings, not just successful on uh, some standardized test, but as full humans. If we're doing that, then the teachers have a mandate, which is, are we being effective stewards of these little people who are trying to become better educators, trying to become better citizens? And everything we do comes back to that purpose, right? If we're uh, the nice thing about having this, purpose, this clear purpose narrative is uh, uh, it tells you what you shouldn't be doing as well as what you should be doing. And we found that these, these uh, purpose narratives are best told in the, in the uh, form of a story. So think of a story really at human scale. It's a story of, say, one student who went through your school whose life was changed by being at that school, by a particular teacher. So our brain is much better with with uh, stories at human scale than stories at a macro scale. So if we say our purpose is to increase our test scores by 3% this year, great. I mean, that's okay, but it doesn't tell you about the humanity that's being changed. So if the story is to find three students whose lives were transformed this year by being in our school. And that's much more engaging. So in experiments we've run uh, on purpose communications, 
having that social purpose is really important, right? And and everyone in education is, I think, almost everyone is committed to changing lives, and that's a, a really a sacred duty. And to recognize that as a sacred duty, and to um, really celebrate those who go be above and beyond to make that happen is wonderful. So how about having a end of the year, uh, you know, we, we call these ovations, having these, these celebrations where a student whose life has been changed picks out a teacher and we all go in the uh, multi-purpose room and we celebrate that relationship. We hear about that student and we hear how that teacher went above and beyond what he or she had to do to change a life. I mean, that would be a wonderful start. And then it sets up aspirations for everyone else in the school, for teachers and for students, on what we expect of ourselves, which hopefully is excellence. Sure, sure. Fascinating. Uh, For those of you who are just joining us, uh, we are probably three-quarters of the way into our show uh, speaking with Dr. Paul Zak, who is a scientist um, in neuroeconomics and neurology, we're talking about trust in the moral molecule, the chemistry behind uh, trusting relationships. Um, I, I'm really struck by what you have been saying about purposeful uh, communications um, and, and just was reflecting back on the, what I would call successful leadership practices that I've seen exhibited. And, and that's certainly one of them. Uh, there is a, Um, uh, instrument that we use that uh, is a 360 feedback instrument called the Leadership Practices Inventory that actually has a construct that is called, that is uh, labeled uh, enables others to act. That's a very important um, uh, leadership practice. And there are other, there are a lot of, of activities under enables others to act, but one of them happens to be around the celebration of, of tasks that have been completed. Uh, and so um, I'm, I'm saying all that to lead me to the question I had for you, which is, so if you could tell us about what are some of the behaviors, uh, you've mentioned a few, but what are, what are some other behaviors for leaders to think about other than very deliberate communication that are on a, just a day-to-day basis that help to build trust that start to trigger these very complex mechanisms that you're describing uh, that, that in your research. But what, what are just some of those behaviors that are the initiators of these, these mechanisms? Mm-hmm. Uh, great question. And so we have a, actually a long list of those uh, for organizations We've developed an easy-to-remember acronym to uh, help people remember what these behaviors are. There are eight of them. And somehow, magically, Brian, they spell out oxytocin. I don't know how that happened. Uh, the, the, <laughs> the, the O is for ovation. So we, we talked about already celebrating uh, people who meet or exceed goals. You know, the neuroscience gives us very precise prescriptions on how to optimize uh, all these interventions for maximum impact on brain and behavior. So just as an example, for ovation, you want to have celebrations close in time when the goal is met or, um, or exceeded. 
after a week or so, the brain just sees it's ancient history to the brain, so it doesn't help us much. Um, so in addition, celebrations that are unexpected, that are tangible, that are personal, that are public, that include family and friends that come from peers, all those have much stronger impact than the principal, say, recognizing a, a, a teacher who's done well at the end of the year. That's wonderful. We should not do that. But, you know, at your weekly faculty meeting, much better to come in with a $50 uh, coffee gift card for a teacher who loves coffee and say, uh, you know, Mrs. Smith was extraordinary this last week. Um, these things happened to her, and, and this is how she handled it. And, and it was just a, a great reflection on the school, was uh, helpful to, to the teachers, and uh, was good for students. So, um, again, we're, we're a little short on time, so I can't go through all the details of these, but people can certainly email me um, and, uh, you know, get more information. I'll, we, I'll, I'll give sure. out, at the end of the talk, I'll give out a website. They can get free stuff. Sure, sure. So the second component we call expectation, which is setting high goals, high but achievable goals. So we get, again, much more buy-in when those goals are high but achievable. And once you've achieved those goals, we go back to step one, which is celebrate. Um, the third component we call yield. And that's actually allowing people to choose how they do a project. So not micromanaging teachers, not micromanaging uh, principals, really allowing them um, enough freedom to innovate. If, if, if you micromanage everything, you're going to get regression to the mean, just doing the, you know, the average. So you want some people to, to try to do something different. And sometimes it won't work so well, then you'll do that again. And sometimes you'll find new ways to do things better. Uh, the fourth component of transfer. Transfer is uh, allowing people to choose what they work on, not just how they do something. So it's really allowing people to self-manage. Uh, the next component we call openness. This is having really clear communication. I think it's so important between boards, um, uh, school superintendents, principals, really understanding why we're doing things, not just what we're doing. So allowing the free flow of information and um, you know opening up the books. Uh, Put the, the uh, board meetings online. Let, let people see what's happening. Otherwise, if you don't know what's happening, you have stress, and then that inhibits your ability to be effective and trust others. Uh, the next component is called caring, C for caring. Uh, caring is really intentionally building relationships between others. So have a time where we take the teachers off-site and they get to know each other and just have some fun together. Um, you know, have an opportunity to really build those relationships. I don't know, put some power bars in the snack room and uh, let people sit around and have a cup of coffee and chat with each other. Um, you know, at first they'll talk about movies and dogs, and then they'll talk about teaching, and they'll talk about things they care about. So really intentionally building uh, relationships with others. Two more components. The second and last one we call invest is really enabling whole person growth, so both professional growth but also personal growth um, from a from a performance perspective and from a health and wellness perspective, we go on to feel like we're making progress in our lives, and leaders can certainly facilitate that progress or inhibit it, and it's really focusing on the future, on where you want to be personally and professionally. And lastly, for leaders, uh, a component we call natural, which is being honest and um, authentic, but also vulnerable, you know, asking for help when you need it. You don't have to be a god. If you're a principal or a superintendent or whomever, None of us are gods, right? We all need people around us to help us. And yes. it turns out that people will trust you a lot more when you show that you are authentically interested in getting help from others. So anyway, I went through that quite fast, but um, uh, much more at our website, which is ofactor.com, O-F-A-C-T-O-R.com. 
tons of downloads and free stuff and tools that people can use to be more effective in organizations. Sure, sure. Well, we have, we're going to take a few more minutes. Um, we can go over. I, I uh, really appreciate you coming on. I have uh, a caller um, who's calling in from uh, Denver, Colorado. Um, caller, are you there? I, I am. Please go ahead with your question or your comment. Okay. Thank you for the chance to, to ask a question. So the question I have, I mean, I, I think we can agree that trust is so crucial to the success of organizations and that it takes time to build, which is why, you know, it, some research indicates it takes three to seven years to really make a sustainable change. Structurally, for some superintendents and some principals, they're put in a situation and said, you know, told, you have a year to make this work or you're out. And, you know, there, there's some structural problems with that. But in those situations, what are, what are the priorities? What are some good immediate steps those leaders can take to start building that trust as quickly as possible in some really, you know, stressful circumstances? What a wonderful question. Yeah, thank you. Um, so most of the organizations I've worked with are in crisis. Um, so they I, – I, I like to joke as an academic. You know, they've used up all the good ideas, and now they're, uh, they're calling me. Um, so, uh, um, you know, uh, part of it is really being clear about what our goals are. So, um, you know, one of the, the really strategic assets every organization has is culture. And, you know, culture will either manage you or you can manage it. So it's actually redefining that culture. And I've seen very rapid turnarounds, uh, particularly in for-profit organizations, in which they do a culture transplant, and right away the same individuals, by and large, are engaged, they're focused. So um, I'm always a big believer in having a, a listening session. So you're a new leader. You've got to make changes. First of all, just to listen what are we doing great and what are we doing terribly? Um, you know, what, you guys who work here, who work here longer than me, what do you think are the best things that we do? What are the worst things we do? What should we stop doing? And really getting everyone on board. And then um, once you've got that, you've really got to manage and measure. So you know, here are our key performance indicators. And this year we're going to push on these things. And um, uh, as I mentioned, I spent uh, a couple of days with school superintendents from public schools uh, just last week, and I had some amazing stories who, of uh, individuals primarily who uh, were then were principals who took over schools and within a year did a very rapid and profound turnaround. So uh, get everyone on board, uh, identify what you want to change, identify what you're going to do to change that, and then set those expectations high, and then be there servicing the people that you lead so that they can be effective. Thank you very much, and we really appreciate your time. Uh, we have with us um, Dr. Paul Zach, who has just laid out some really helpful uh, information for leaders in terms of organizing uh, and, and understanding what would, would make for uh, good leadership of their organizations. We want to thank you, uh, Dr. Zach. Know you're very busy uh, for taking time out of your day. Um, for our listeners, thank you for joining in. We want to invite you back next month. Uh, we have another uh, important show lined up for you on May the 11th, same time at 2 p.m. We have Dr. Amy Stewart-Wells, who is a professor of sociology and education, um, and is the director of the Center for Understanding Race and Education here at Columbia University. 
and she will be on the show talking about uh, the latest report on uh, school desegregation and resegregation in our nation. Um, and so we want you to join us again May 11th um, at 2 p.m. And again, thank you so much, Paul, for being with us. I hope that if you're out here, um, we can invite you to come to a lecture at the university. Um, but we appreciate you being on the show. And for those of thank you, thank you so much, Brian. Thank you, and uh, just to those of you who joined us, go well, stay well, take care.